All right. Hillary and I, too, can give testimony to the fact that God is just... <laughs> Terry! <laughs> Terry, don't charge me for that. Um, you know, that he's just faithful. The, the more that we extend and give and trust, he just comes through. I know that probably almost all of you in here could give a similar testimony to that. So... Uh, I just want to affirm you are generous people, and we will continue to be such. In fact, our generosity goes beyond just what we're able to spend in this place, but we have a group of 20-plus people that are in Mexico right now building a house that you helped pay for. And... uh, and putting on a pastor conference, and doing just great work with kids in the community. So that is a small extension also of what we do uh, around the world, but then we're, we do that in our community as well. And you'll be hearing more about that. You'll get more opportunities to engage in that, and we want your ideas for how we can collectively engage in that kind of stuff. Oh, a new one. Look at that. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah, it's my height. Um, so, yeah, that's just what I wanted to say about that. I read... (laughs) Don't tell her. Okay, we're good right there. Um, I get Fast Company. I don't know if any of you get that magazine. It's a good magazine. It comes monthly. I like it. I read an article just recently in Fast Company about how this, they were challenging the status quo, this, this assumed thought that creativity and innovation come in these little brain trusts, these little gatherings of brainstorming with whiteboards and things like that, that that's where creativity happens in the brainstorming. And this article was talking about all the different incredible things that have been birthed out of an individual alone thinking about how to solve a problem. And this article is making a big deal about iPods and iPads and things like that that came from one man's head as he sat alone uh, for large periods of time thinking about what would be next. There's a quote from Albert Einstein. He says, solitude is painful when one is young, but delightful when one is more mature. I lived in solitude in the country and noticed how a quiet life stimulates the creative mind. Albert Einstein, somewhat bright. There's a quote in your notes that says, uh, conversation enriches the understanding, but solitude is the school of genius. And then a, a guy that I like, I don't know if you've read Henry Nouwen, but Henry Nouwen said, you have to pray. You have to listen to the voice who calls you the beloved, because otherwise you will run around begging for affirmation and for praise for success, and then you are not free. There's something about time alone, time when we're not running around, time when we're not being reinforced by the extra stuff, the outside stuff, when we're not at the beck and call of anyone with our crackberries and our eye leashes, and we can just be alone and get centered on who God says that we are. And who God says that he is. There's just something about that. Because we, we have a God that is the source of all creativity. And not just creativity uh, that he instills and allows us as being created in his image to play a role in creation and creativity. Which is awesome. But he also created us. And he, it's from him that we derive our very identity. And so naturally, it, in, in these times that we're going to talk about today. 
When we get alone, we allow God to speak life into who we are. And then often, what comes next? So why do we resist solitude? I want to offer a few things to you. I think that we, there, there's fear involved in this. We fear being insignificant. We like, we like that people need us. We like that we have a full inbox. We like that we're being texted. We like that 20 people liked our post, right? We like this kind of stuff. It affirms us. And I think there's a fear when we're alone, when we're by ourselves, intentionally, that we are insignificant. I know I, I have dreams about things that I want to do and accomplish, and sometimes when I get still and quiet, there is this anxiety in me that says, you're getting behind. You're falling behind. You should be pushing forward. When I grew up playing sports, there was this thing in my head that said, somebody else is working harder right now, right? And that's part of what made some of you a great, stinking athlete is that you had that in you, but it's part now of what drives us crazy and prevents us from slowing down and letting God fill us with our identity and with our purpose and what he has for us in this season. We also fear being disappointed. Maybe you've had some kind of experience where you've, you've gone and you've spent some time and you've said, God, I, I, want, I want you to speak to me, and it didn't happen. Or at least you didn't feel like it happened in that moment. And so there's this expectation that, well, if I go and I'm alone and I'm silent and he doesn't show up, then it just confirms that he doesn't really want to talk to me anyway. Or maybe there's just too much stuff in my life and I'm blocked and I can't hear from him. So we have this kind of fear, well, what if I do this and he doesn't show up? Then what? And then there's a third fear, just flat out being alone. I know some of us have lost people that are very close to us. Uh, maybe there was abandonment issues when we were kids. And so we have this deep-seated fear of being alone. And we go from crowded space to crowded space, party to party, phone call to phone call. And we always just try to fill that void so we know that you know, we're connected. People care about us. Someone's there. There's a, you, you see it in our culture. It's a normal thing. I know for a fact that many of you women, uh, you won't even go to the bathroom alone, right? I mean, there's just like this, this built-in thing that's like, uh, you will go with me. There's a, that funny commercial where the guy's like, Joe, I got to go to the bathroom. You want to come with me? And they make fun of him for like the rest of the commercial, which is about 10 seconds. But it, it's, it's, you know, it's ingrained in us. We just, we just want to do this together. You see, uh, you see two people. I just saw like two teenage kids, and they were sharing a pair of earbuds, you know. Like I, I'm listening to my music, and I want you to hear it too. So I got one earbud in here and one earbud in here. And uh, I was told recently, because I was commenting on it, that that's like the new milkshake with two straws. Like, you're dating, you're in, like, it's this, we're connected. Uh, no more milkshakes at Ruby's, but like, we, we share earbuds, and we're connected, and we do that together. And there's, there's but we're that, that connectedness, that, that togetherness, I even want you to experience my, my music. That's part of what we do. And, and there's this affirmation that something isn't really cool or something hasn't even really happened until it is on Facebook and until we get affirmed for it. Like, if something cool happens and we're by ourselves without our camera to, to capture it, it's like it didn't even happen, right? I can't even tell anybody about it. No, the Instagram doesn't know. And uh, so it's just a part of our culture. And these things, together with people, all the things that I'm saying are not bad things. They are not bad things. But they do, in abundance, compete with how we were designed to commune with our Creator, just setting aside time to be with Him. I want to suggest to you that our busyness, our fear of disappointment, our fear of being alone, our fear of being insignificant, those things will rob us 
from actually something that you really do want, which is a genuine connection with your, with your designer, with your God, with the one who gives you your identity and has a lot to say about your life and about today and about this next season that I believe strongly he is preparing you for. We're going to spend all of our time in Matthew chapter 4 this morning, verses 1 through 11. It's in your notes. It's broken up with a couple of points and questions here and there. We're going Matthew 4 and only Matthew 4. So let us jump in right now, all right? Verse 1 says, Then Jesus which is a great place to start. If I started this message saying, then Caleb, I would understand if you went and got some coffee. But when I started saying, then Jesus, I hope you lean in, right? This is, this is something to pay attention to. Then Jesus was led by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. After 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. You think? <laughs> 40 days without eating? 40 days of fasting, I have fasted, I personally, uh, what was it? I think it was seven days that I fasted, and that was brutal. I can't imagine 40 days of fasting he was hungry. But I want you to pay attention to this. It says the Spirit of God led Jesus into, into the wilderness. And it wasn't just for an hour. It was for 40 days. It was for a long stretch. So when the Spirit of God leads Jesus into the wilderness, he's leading him out of Normal life, probably Jerusalem. He's in the city. He's with people all the time. He's, and he's leading him out of that and into this space of quiet. The first point in your notes, one of the secrets of solitude is to eliminate distractions. There wasn't anything else out in the wilderness. That's why it's the wilderness. There are animals. There are cactuses. There are bushes. There is a lot of dirt, and there are a lot of rocks. And that's about it. One of the secrets to solitude is eliminating distractions. And even Jesus, who is God, is allowing himself to be led out into this wilderness space for something. To be prepared. To be alone. That even he, who is God himself, is needing this time to connect with his Father. Because here's the thing, when distracting things are eliminated, we are able to discern the more significant things of life, the more meaningful things of life. We're able to listen to God. We're able to, we're able to discern what are the voices of chaos and, and things that don't matter, and what is God's voice? When we eliminate distractions, we're, that becomes more clear. Abraham Lincoln, he said that the busier he got, that the more important his decisions came, the longer he spent in the mornings alone praying with God. There were accounts of him, the people that wrote his biographies, that he would spend hours, up to three hours, early in the mornings, just walking around, crying out to God before he had to make these major decisions. If, one of the, if probably the most influential president in our country's history needed to do that, and if our Lord and Savior, who was in fact God, still needed time alone with God. Maybe it's something that we should pay attention to. How much more do we need to eliminate some distractions in our life and get in tune with what he might be trying to tell us? One of the questions I want you to answer right here is, what are the primary distractions that are preventing you from intentional time with God? I just want you to think about that for five seconds in this moment here. What are the, intent, what are the primary distractions that are preventing you from spending some intentional time just being with 
and listening to God. Verse 3 says, The tempter came to him and said, If you are the Son of God, tell these stones to become bread. Jesus answered, It is written, Man shall not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. Now, I don't know about you, but I would have been sunk on this first temptation by, by the enemy as he comes 40 days without eating. Uh, I, I want to get out of discomfort and into a more comfortable situation as quickly as possible. Can you relate to that? I mean, maybe, so God made it clear, hey, I want you to fast for 40 days. And he's like, okay, 40 days and 40 nights I fasted. Good, check. Let's do this, right? So Satan comes with this thing. Jesus could say, well, it's been the 40 days. I'm good. I think Satan really like undersold the opportunity by saying, turn the rock into bread. I would have gone with like a filet and uh, some sweet potato fries or something like that. He just went with bread. But Jesus says no. Because there's a bigger story happening here. Even though the 40 days were up, God was preparing him for this. God was allowing him to prepare for this. And you say, let me get clear on this. So Jesus, who is God in human flesh, needs to be prepared? Well, yeah, but he made the choice, right? He made the choice to lay down some of his divine privilege or right And he chose to be human and engage and follow his father in this way. So, yes, he was being prepared. And he knew that he was being prepared for a moment like this, for this season of ministry when the enemy would test him and he would ultimately go to the cross, right? So he, he wasn't looking for a quick shortcut. He saw, he saw that this was, this was the defining moment, and he, uh, and he overcame it. You, I also just want to point out that the 40 days and the 40 nights was representative of the, of the Israelites being in, you know, wandering in the desert for 40 years, so in that, in that preparation season, God was also saying, hey, this is, this is the new Israel. Where Israel, where my people weren't able to fulfill what I had planned, Jesus now fulfills that. He, he overcomes our human weakness and is that. So that's the significance of those 40 days. And even still, when the enemy comes and says, hey, have some food here. Have some food here. He says, no, I'm I'm good. I'm good. I don't need to jump out of the discomfort immediately and into comfort and feeling better in this moment. I'm allowing God to prepare me. I have a friend who uh, just this week told me that he spends some time alone with God. It's easier for him to engage and go and have this time uh, when he's feeling really desperate. So recently he had a deal with his daughter that blew up. And so he went and he spent some time alone just crying out to God saying, God, you know, be with my daughter. Help this situation. This is brutal. This is, this is tearing me up inside. And, and we do that, don't we? That's fantastic. We should. We should. When, when we're desperate, when things are difficult, we should be alone with God. But let me tell you, friends, you don't have to be desperate to schedule the time. You can schedule it now. You can choose now to be desperate for God to show up tomorrow because you know that without him, this life is crazy. You can choose to eliminate just a little bit of comfort from, from your life 
so that the discomfort later isn't just overwhelmingly brutal, right? It's a choice in this moment to say, I will schedule that time and invite a little bit of discomfort because I know that I need this connection with my creator. It doesn't have to require pain. You can seek it out. You can seek out this, this connection in this time. Don't wait until you're desperate. Decide that you're desperate now. So embrace desperation is that next point. Let me ask you this. In what area of your life are you or should you be desperate for God's insight or his intervention? What area of your life are you or should you be desperate in this season right now? The devil's not done yet. He comes back to Jesus in verse 5, and it says that he took him up to the holy city and had him stand on the highest point of the temple. If you are the Son of God, he says, throw yourself down, for it is written, he will command his angels concerning you, and they will lift you up in their hands, so that you will not strike your foot against a stone. And Jesus answered, it is also written, do not put the Lord your God to the test. This is the enemy's temptation to our human pride, right? Show me. Prove it. Do this. You can do this, right? Just, just, just show me that this, is, that this is your deal. God will come through for you. He has a way, this, this enemy, this enemy of God, he has a way of taking a little bit of truth and twisting it just a little bit, right? That's why you've been around Christians that have, and you read in history books, how Christians have taken some, some piece of scripture and have used it to justify their point of pride and their own agenda, right? It's tragic, but it happens all the time. And that's what the enemy is trying to test Jesus with here. He's saying, this, doesn't the scripture say this? So prove it, appealing to his pride. And he does that to us. He appeals to the pride, and he says, hey, you know, let's proof text this. I'll find a verse that works to justify you stepping out in this way and doing this thing. That pride trigger is dangerous, Here's, here's a warning light, okay, since the devil actually likes to use the Bible. Uh, if you ever find yourself trying to use Scripture or trying to use some truth that, that you've come up with to suggest that you deserve something, let that be a light in your mind. If you find yourself saying, oh, well, no, I deserve this, and it says in the Bible that, so I deserve and we should experience and... Uh, let that be a warning. Something, the enemy might be twisting something here. I, I know of a guy who said uh, he, he decided, he was about in his mid-40s, and he just decided that his life had not worked out the way he had anticipated and that he deserved different. And the first thing, that he, as he recalled, that he, de- that he demanded was, I deserve a raise. I've been working in this job. I put in more time. I'm more talented. I deserve a raise. Within six months, he got, he got a considerable raise, a significant jump in pay. And so he was excited, and he spent this money, and he went out. And then he, the, his big, next big expenditure was he deserved a better car. I've been driving this car for six years. I deserve a better car. So he bought nicest, fastest, fanciest car he could buy. The next decision, just about six months after that, was that his spouse wasn't living up to his expectations. I deserve somebody who's going to meet my needs. 
Who's going to care for me like I need to be cared for? Who's going to serve me? And so he left his spouse. And he estranged himself from his kids and his family. A year after that, after he's dated around and done different things, he gets the bad news that he's got cancer. And it's an aggressive, fast-moving cancer. And he's dying, and there aren't many people to visit him. But he asks for a minister to come and be with him. Because he grew up, he, he believes in God, he knows the drill, and he wanted this minister to come, and he confessed to this ministry. He says, I don't deserve this. I had a rough life growing up, and I've worked hard. I earned the stuff that I got, and I don't deserve it. Why would God allow this to happen to me? And the minister who told me the story says, Son, you've got this all wrong. The only thing you or any of us deserve is death. We know that that's coming. All the good, all the blessing, all the great things that happen in between is a bonus. It's a gift from God. One more quote from Henry Nouwen. He said, it's in solitude that we can slowly unmask the illusion of our possessiveness and discover in the center of our own self that we are not what we can conquer but what is given to us. Embrace desperation. And the last point is to embrace, second to last point, is to embrace dependence. That's just, that's just saying... God, you are, you are the source of every good thing. So let me ask you this question. In what ways do you find it difficult to trust that God's timing and his will is truly, best, is truly the best thing? In what ways do you find that difficult to believe? In what ways do you find yourself saying, I deserve different Asked another way, where does pride typically creep in for you and make you think, I deserve something else? Last one. Verse 8, and the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their splendor. All of this I will give you, he said, if you will bow down and worship me. Jesus said to him, away from me, Satan. We're done here. For it is written, worship the Lord your God and serve him only. Then the devil left him and angels attended to him. He says, I will give you all of this. And that's, and that's a, a great temptation, right? Because this would have been a great shortcut for Jesus. He, the, the enemy knew what was going on here. He said, I will give you authority over all of this. You don't have to go through the cross. You don't have to go through all this pain and suffering. I'll give it to you now. Just this one little thing. Worship me real quick. Just this one time, right? You don't have, there's a shortcut. And then you can be the Messiah and you can be, you can do all that stuff. But just, but just worship me here real quick. Shortcut to significance, shortcut to titles, and shortcut to, for us, we, we are prone. I am prone to this tendency to want to get to the status, to get to the thing more quickly. If there's a shorter way, 
You get there, you want to get there. Look at reality television. I know some of our friends that are obsessed with reality television and want to get on a reality television show, they can become like quasi-famous pretty quickly for having a cat fight and a bad spray tan, right? Without adding any real genuine value to the world around them. That's what reality TV is about. There is this obsession with, can I get to my end goal more quickly? Can I get to this place of position, this place of authority, this place of significance more quickly? And we live in a, in a time when we are constantly known for and reminded of what we do, what we've done, right? Titles that you carry, maybe your teacher, maybe your dad, maybe your husband, maybe your boss, maybe your CEO. These definitions these titles, these ways that people approach you and interact with you. Some of them we like. Some of, some of those kind of positions and titles and definitions we like. Right? I'm an authority figure. I'm a teacher. I'm whatever. Some of them we're embarrassed about. I'm a felon. I'm, a, I'm unemployed. I'm, right? These definitions. The, the, the good ones we try to elevate and the bad ones we try to, we try to ignore. And so we, it's easy to become a slave to these, these social definitions. We want to impress people by our work, but it's these, it's these false scorecards, right? And we have this tendency to sell our soul to grade givers, people that are ranking us on our performance, grading us on how we show up. And we feel intelligent because of a grade that we got. We feel helpful because somebody says thanks, we feel likable because someone says that they like us. And we feel worthwhile because of some success. And then our actions and our definitions are leading to our self-worth and our value. But when you are alone, when you pull out of that rat race, those traps of definitions, when you're alone, you allow God to speak into who you are, his child the child of the king, created to do good works that he's known from the beginning of time that you would do, that he knows that you are just the way you are, and that's okay, that you are accepted and loved by him in the context of this community, but ultimately by him. And he whispers to you who he created you to be, that he designed you, that he has a plan for you, that he knows the days, the plan for your future, that he's got that marked out for you, that you can escape definitions and embrace the fact that you are accepted, you are loved apart from your performance. What are the roles and expectations and achievements and pressures that prevent you from being free? What do you think that God might want to tell you about who you are? And then what do you think he might be preparing you for? I promise you, he is preparing you for something. There is something coming. He always leads us from this to something better. It doesn't always feel like it's something better in the journey, in the process, but he's taking you from here to there. And he's taking us collectively from here to somewhere else. It's, it's marked by this transition to a new place next week at the library, which is exciting, but I want you to know he's preparing us as a community 
for something else, for something more in this time and in this season and in this place that we get to be a part of. And that's exciting. He's also preparing you for something. Maybe a change that's in your family. Maybe a change that's in your workplace. Maybe it's just this next step of maturity and commitment that he wants for you. A risk that he's asking you to take. This is a season of preparation. And you'll maximize it. You will be prepared in solitude alone with him. Yes, he can speak to you just like this. Yes, he can speak to you through other people, absolutely. But he also wants us to follow the example of his son who got away, went to the wilderness, and was with his father for 40 days and 40 nights. And he made a rhythm of pulling away from the action and the activity and spending time alone with God. We can avoid a life of chasing and embrace a life of peace. We can avoid a life of comparing and embrace his preparing. So let me ask you this. When will you schedule your next intentional, distraction-free time with God? Will you write it down? Will you even put it in your phone or just make a determination that whether it's 10 minutes, whether it's 15 minutes, whether it's 30 minutes, or whether it's three hours, will you set aside some time this next week? If you do this typically, then maybe just a little bit more. And will you say, God, I am going to do this. I am going to meet you here. I want to hear from you. I, want, I believe that you are preparing me for something in this season, that you want to speak life into me, that you want to give me direction and vision and passion for where I am going, where my family is going, where my job, my workplace is going, where our community of believers is going. I will spend time and I will let you speak into that. God, would you do that right now? Would you just drive home that conviction that it is you who wants to speak? It is you who defines us. It is you who created us. And you continue to want to speak to us. Prepare us as we pause, as we listen, as we seek you. That we can be ready for this next part of the journey. And this next part of our growth. In Jesus' name.